kid, there were times, like every other kid in the universe, when being rich and famous sounded like a lot of fun. The idea of being famous has some appeal, doesn't it? Fame is attractive because it seems to offer very significant benefits. The fantasies go like this. When you're famous wherever you go, your good reputation will precede you. People will think well of you. You will get warm smiles from admiring strangers. When you're famous, you will be safe from rejection. You won't have to win over every new person. Fame will mean other people will be flattered and delighted if you are only even interested in them. They will be amazed to see you in the flesh. They will ask to take a photo with you. They'll sometimes laugh nervously with excitement in your presence. Furthermore, no one will be able to afford to upset you. When you're not pleased with something, it will be a big problem for some other person. Your complaints will be taken very seriously. Your happiness will become the focus of everyone's efforts, and you will make or break other people's reputation. You'll be the boss. Some have written that the desire for fame has its roots in the experience of neglect or pain or injury. No one would want to be famous who hadn't also somewhere in the past been made to feel extremely insignificant. We sense the need for a great deal of admiration and attention when we have been painfully exposed to earlier deprivation. Maybe it was parents who were hard to please or the indifference we experienced at school. Maybe it was the hurt and humiliation at the hands of a stranger. There are a lot of sources of that pain. But what is common to all dreams of fame is that being famous emerges as a solution to hurt. It's the answer to our deep need to be appreciated, to be treated decently by other people. And yet fame cannot accomplish what is asked of it. Typically introduces a new set of very serious disadvantages. We want to be famous out of our, of, out of our desire for kindness. But the world isn't generally kind to the famous very long. The success of any one person usually involves the humiliation of someone else. So resentments begin to build up. You see, fame is a tricky thing. We all understand that, or at least we should. Fame means we get noticed a great deal, not that we're always understood or appreciated or loved. Fame is short-lived. How quickly yesterday's heroes become today's has-beens and tomorrow's forgotten footnotes. There's a story from ancient history about a Roman general who came back from a great victory in a distant land. And during the victory parade, as the people watched and cheered, a slave followed behind the general, whispering these words in his ear. Sic transit gloria mundi. The glory of the world is fleeting. You see, everything good, everything bad. Everything happy, everything sad, everything in this world passes away. 
fame, wealth, power. All of it is fleeting. And we are left with a question. Is there anything on this earth that will last forever? I invite you to hear from the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the Lord, word of the Lord will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. He will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. It's easy to forget how revolutionary these words must have sounded in the beginning. They were spoken by an angel to a virgin, announcing a baby who would one day rule the world. And it came totally out of the blue to a teenage girl in Nazareth, a minor city in the remote corner of the Roman Empire. To her, the angel suddenly came and made a series of incredible announcements. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be very great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. His kingdom will never end. Mary could have asked a follow-up question about any of those things, but being both thoughtful and practical, she asks only the first one, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. And the answer was both direct and even more amazing. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child will be holy. He will be the Son of God. And then the angel adds two other facts. Remember how Elizabeth got pregnant. And nothing is impossible with God. Now, given this overwhelming information, it is all to Mary's credit that she responded by saying, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. 
Even now, after 2,000 or more years, the angel's message seems mind-blowing. He will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. As I think about those improbable words, I think about the majestic words of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, especially the part where it says, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So I started thinking about what the angel's promise really means, and this is how I put it all together. Here are four truths that I want you to think about today. First, nothing in this world lasts forever. When was the last time that you thought about Zachary Taylor? And you're looking at the person next to you right now saying, Zachary who? It's probably been a long time until a few years ago. The last time I thought about Zachary Taylor was back in Mr. Brown's eighth grade American history class. And I didn't think about him too much even then. Some years ago, it was announced on the radio that they were digging up Zachary Taylor. He died suddenly and somewhat mysteriously in the summer of 1850. It had been so long since I thought about him, I had to stop and remember who he was. When the announcer called him President Taylor, it sounded a little odd to me. I'd never heard that expression with his name before. I knew his name, and I knew he was a president, but I had never heard anyone say President Taylor. It didn't sound right. The scientists dug up his remains to see if he had been poisoned with arsenic by his enemies. It turns out the answer was no, if you're interested. But one newspaper said, we now know more about Zachary Taylor than we ever knew before, and more than we ever wanted to know. Another story called him the most obscure president in American history because he was succeeded by a a man named Millard Fillmore. Here's the oddity of it all. When he died, Zachary Taylor was considered a very great man. One writer put things in perspective by calling him the Norman Schwarzkopf of his day. He was a great military leader later became president. The hero of the Battle of Buena Vista during the Mexican War, his name was Old Rough and Ready, a title not much different from calling George Patton Old Blood and Guts. But we have forgotten all of that. Until they dug him up, we had forgotten Zachary Taylor altogether. One of the old hymns of the church puts it this way, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Solomon added these words of wisdom in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. The living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. What a sobering thought. Even the memory of them is forgotten. It's true, Zachary Taylor has been forgotten. He was once the president 
of the United States. It's true of all human endeavors, isn't it? They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. What a lesson this is for all of us. If you're counting on somebody remembering you after you're gone, forget it. Sooner or later, you'll just be another name on a tombstone. I've done a lot of funeral services over the years, and for those that actually have a service these days, it's a time for family and friends to gather and pay their respects. Someone stands up and says some nice things about you, and then the family may go to the cemetery for burial. In many cases... Family and friends then go back to the church or back to a restaurant, eat some food, and then they get in their cars, they go back home, and they get on with their lives. You may say that's depressing. No, that's reality. If we're looking for significance and permanence in this world, we are wasting our time. The world forgets the past, it lives in the present, and it dreams about the future. And all of those things we do to give ourselves significance, the degrees after our name, the houses we buy, the money we save, the cars we drive, the empires we build, the relationships we seek, the clothes we wear, the networks we create, in the end, all of those things will amount to nothing. If we're living for this world, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because nothing, nothing in this world lasts forever. Now the second truth is this, only God's kingdom will last forever. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 says that God is going to establish a kingdom that is unshakable. Everything that is of this world is shakable. Buildings crumble into dust. Companies go into bankruptcy. Our degrees fade into illegibility. Our houses age and creak and crumble. Our cars rust out. And worst of all, our bodies eventually wear out. But the kingdom of God lasts forever. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary, he predicted that he would that she would give birth to a son who would reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, God desires to establish a kingdom on earth that will last forever. And that kingdom will be made up of men and women who have decided to live by God's eternal values. Therefore, the whole human race may be divided into two groups. Those who decide to live by earthly values and those who decide to live by kingdom values. The difference is this. Living by earthly values produces earthly rewards that often pay off quicker and disappear faster. Living by kingdom values produces kingdom rewards. They don't usually come as quickly but they last forever. We can live for this world or we can live for the kingdom of God. The choice is ours. Here's the third truth. God's kingdom gives meaning to history. 
Where is history going? Philosophers have pondered this question for thousands of years. Is history nothing more than a tale told by an idiot scribbled on the walls of an insane asylum? Or is history, as Edward Gibbon suggested, little more than the register of crimes and follies and misfortunes of mankind? Should we accept the Hindu view that history is an endless cycle of reincarnation? Or should we adopt a vague evolutionary view that we come that we all come up from the slime of, over the course of billions and billions of years. Where would that lead us? To some positive thinkers, nirvana is where every day and in every way things are getting better and better. Or should we conclude with the cynics that life is meaningless, an eternal cul-de-sac that leads to nothing at all? See, no question is more important because the way we view history ultimately shapes the way we view our own life. And if we believe that history is going nowhere, then our life is just a momentary blip on the radar screen of the universe. We pop up, we fly across the screen, we disappear never to be heard from again. And if history has no goal, then life has no meaning. And every person is left to their own devices. Years ago, a guest on the Larry King show said he believed that we are like bottles on a conveyor belt. We pop up, we ride the belt for a while, then someone knocks us off the belt and we disappear and our place is taken by someone else. It would be hard to imagine a more hopeless view of human life. From God's point of view, history is his story. The record of God's dealings with the human race. The Bible teaches that the universe had a definite beginning at a definite point in time. And it teaches that we didn't come up from the slime in some crazy accident of evolution. God created us with a purpose. And history is the story of the slow unfolding of God's purpose on the earth. The Old Testament prophets spoke again and again of a coming kingdom on the earth. Abraham caught a glimpse of it. Moses saw it from afar. David learned about it directly from God. And the major and minor prophets filled in the details. The Old Testament writers foresaw a time when God's Messiah would rule the world from David's throne in Jerusalem. And if we put the pieces together, they speak of a coming golden age for the earth, a utopia, if you will, a paradise on the earth itself. And in that day, the lion will lie down with the lamb and all the nations will stream into Jerusalem. The New Testament writers add two significant details. The promised Messiah is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of God will not be ultimately established until Jesus the King returns to this earth in person. And that is where history is going. The kingdom of God is what history is all about. It's the goal toward which everything else is moving. It's the last chapter in a story that started in the Garden of Eden. Let me give you the Reader's Digest version of what history is all about. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He then placed Adam and Eve on the earth and made them stewards over the whole planet. But when they disobeyed, they surrendered their stewardship into the hands of Satan, God's arch enemy. And from that day until this, the whole world has been the domain of Satan. It's still God's world by creation. But Satan has usurped God's authority and set up a counter kingdom to the kingdom of God. And from that day until this, the earth has been the central battlefield in a war between those two competing kingdoms. But that's not the whole story. Once the world fell into enemy hands, God determined to win it back at any cost. That meant sending his message through the kings and the prophets and the priests and the poets. It meant rising, raising up an entire nation through whom he would bless the earth. But ultimately it meant that he himself had to enter the conflict. In order to take the world back from Satan, God entered the human race in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that story is very familiar to us, but perhaps we're not used to thinking of it as God's ultimate blow against Satan. When Jesus was crucified, it appeared that Satan had won. Indeed, for 36 hours, it seemed certain that he had won, that the battle was over and God had been decisively defeated. But then Sunday came, and with it the empty tomb and the risen Savior suddenly became clear to everyone, even to Satan, that Jesus was the victor in the great battle to reclaim the earth. Our world is still in darkness. But here and there, the followers of Jesus have established outposts of the kingdom, little points of light that promise better things to come. And here's the fourth and final truth. God's kingdom cannot ultimately be defeated. You see, the battle rages on between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. King Jesus on one side and Satan on the other, and in these last 20 centuries, the light has spread until it seems like there's a thousand points of light chasing away the darkness. In many other places, however, things look darker than ever. That's the history of the world up until the present moment. But it's not the end of the story. All over the world, in those little outposts of the kingdom, the followers of Jesus are praying, Thy kingdom come. And as they do, they set their gaze toward the eastern sky and they wait for the Son of God to personally and visibly return to this earth. And when he at last comes, he will trample Satan under his feet. He will judge the people who have done evil. He will set right all the wrongs in this world and the reign, and he will reign from David's throne. That day has not come yet. But it will come, and indeed it is coming. And we believe the signs are all around us that the coming of Christ is not far away. But whether near or far, the kingdom Jesus will establish on earth forms the goal of all human history. 
It is the last and greatest chapter in this battle of the ages. Unlike many parts of our world, we live in a nation that was founded on religious freedom. And yet in some places we are seeing opposition and harassment of Christians increasing. The COVID-19 pandemic has been used as an excuse by some to crack down on churches and faith communities. In the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 12, we read a warning to empires that are built on forgetting God. And it says this, What sorrows await you who build cities with money, gain through murder and corruption. It was a reference to the great Babylonian Empire, which in its day conquered the ancient Near East through extraordinary violence and cruelty. And those words apply to every evil empire in history. Those who profit by evil, by lying, by corruption, will one day be brought low. Every nation or kingdom on this earth has seemed invincible at the height of its power. But the roll call of fallen empires stands for all to see. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, Rome. You see, those who think they are invincible should beware. For the mightiest empires will one day be brought to the ground. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 points out the ultimate truth. For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of God. There is no power, no policy, there are no pundits that can reverse what God is doing. The ultimate fulfillment of this verse awaits the return of Christ to earth to establish his kingdom. But as we race headlong toward the final days of this age, we should not be surprised. We should even expect that there's going to be an explosion of the gospel preached around the world and untold multi, uh, multitudes will be coming to Christ, even as there's an explosion of evil to combat it. All of this is what the angel had in mind when he told Mary he will reign over Israel forever and his kingdom will never end. See, Jesus has a kingdom. He is building it in human hearts around the world. Someday he will return visibly to this earth and that kingdom, his kingdom, will never end. The true followers of Jesus are the ultimate revolutionaries in the world because they have concluded that there's one thing that's never going to end, and it's God's kingdom. People of faith are not like everybody else. We have been gripped with a thought that the kingdom of God is the greatest thing in the world. And that one thought has revolutionized our lives and reoriented all of our values. You see, kingdom issues are at stake that's why we live the way we live and work tirelessly for the cause of Christ. Here's my final appeal to you. Everyone hearing my words today has a choice to make. Either you join yourself to the kingdoms of this world that are doomed to fail, 
or you join forces with Jesus Christ and follow him as your Lord and Savior. My prayer is that you chose Jesus. His kingdom will never end. Why would we follow anyone else? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in your goodness and grace you look down on our sinful human race. And despite our rebellion, you purposed in your heart to save us from the consequences of our sin by sending your Son to become the sacrifice for that sin so that through him we might not perish but have everlasting life. To God and God alone be all praise and glory forever and forever. Amen. We're going to close with a song this morning. Let's sing this together. Good news of great joy For every woman, every man And this will be a sign to you A baby born in Bethlehem Oh, come and worship Do not be afraid A company of angels Glory in the highest And on the earth a peace among All those in whom his favor rests Oh, come and worship Do not be afraid Oh, my soul, my soul, my soul Magnifies the Lord, my soul Magnifies the Lord Because He has done great things to me Great things for me Unto you a child is born And unto us a son is given under heaven Oh, come and worship Do not be afraid Oh, my soul, my soul, my soul Magnifies the Lord, my soul Magnifies the Lord He has done great things for me Great things for me Magnifies the Lord, my soul Magnifies the Lord Well, He has done great things for me Great things for me